My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people that are facing many different struggles, talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I will be speaking with Wendy Peterson. The downtown east side neighborhood of Vancouver is, famously, the poorest urban neighborhood in Canada. It has a very high proportion of residents living on low and extremely low incomes. Given that governments in this country have done next to nothing to address housing issues in the last two decades, many residents of the downtown east side have only one option other than living on the streets, renting a room in what get called single room occupancy, or SRO, hotels. These buildings contain small individual rooms for rent, often with no kitchen facilities whatsoever and a shared bathroom down the hall. Many of the hundred or so buildings that house the 5,000-plus SRO units in the downtown east side are old, some approaching the century mark, and many landlords are unwilling to invest the money necessary to maintain them. This means that living conditions in many of them span the range from poor to utterly appalling. At the same time, rents are going up. The average SRO rent in the neighborhood is already well above the shelter allowance portion of welfare payments in British Columbia, and the entire neighborhood is under threat from gentrification, as investors seek to buy SRO hotels and other properties so they can change how they're used, displace existing residents, remake the neighborhood, and profit extensively from the fact that urban Vancouver is one of the most expensive real estate markets in the country. Wendy Peterson is an organizer with the Downtown Eastside SRO Collaborative. This relatively new organization is based on an organizing model that is used extensively in San Francisco, one of the few places in North America where low-income tenants are under even more severe threat than Vancouver. The idea is to work with tenants of a given SRO hotel to set up a tenant committee in the building, to help them develop knowledge about their rights and about the system, as well as skills for community organizing and leadership, and to focus on using a combination of political pressure and legal mechanisms to force landlords to improve the living conditions in the building. This organizing, with its focus on habitability, improves the lives of tenants, builds their collective power in one building, and creates a basis for broader political campaigns spanning multiple buildings or even the entire neighborhood. The Downtown Eastside SRO Collaborative got initial funding from a local nonprofit housing provider and has had success in organizing tenants in six SRO hotels, including four of the worst in the neighborhood. They've won some significant victories already, despite the relatively early stage of the organizing, and the backlash they've faced from landlords has been intense. They're scrambling to make sure they have funding in place for the coming year and are hopeful they'll be able to expand their reach to ten buildings. Whether it's through expanding their own capacity or helping other collaboratives form independently, they're keen to see this approach to organizing spread and spread quickly to defend and improve the low-income housing that does exist, to help defend the neighborhood as a whole from gentrification, and, hopefully down the road, to win the massive new investment in social housing that tenants in the downtown east side so desperately need. I spoke with Peterson by Skype to phone from Vancouver. 
My name is Wendy Peterson, and I'm the coordinator of a project called the Downtown Eastside Collaborative. And the Collaborative is a project that we adapted from San Francisco, the Mission District. And basically, we work on habitability campaigns. And habitability is improving renters, the conditions of maintenance in their buildings, and safety in their buildings and in their units. And we work on leadership development, so we help tenants to learn about their rights, and we help them to learn how to be community organizers in their buildings. We do a bunch of other things, but that's the essence of our project. I've been a community organizer in the downtown east side since my early 20s, and I'm almost 50, and I've lived in the community here too. My dad is a fisherman, a commercial fisherman, and my mother came from a farming background. And so when I came to the downtown east side, I found a beautiful low-income community that seemed familiar to me <laughs> with a lot of displaced resource industry kids basically here. So over the years, I've made this place my home. And you can't have a community without stable housing. And I eventually got into the housing campaign. And I totally enjoy getting to know people. Door knocking is my favorite thing to do, like cold call door knocking in the community, meeting new people and getting people connected and working with each other. It's like completely exciting. And especially when I see them starting to help each other, and it's like paradise. Over the years, I've been working with many, many people trying to get more social housing in the downtown east side. We need about 5,000 units of social housing to replace the single room occupancy hotels. We shorten the word for hotels or SROs in the downtown east side. And we're trying to replace these aging SROs, which are just single rooms with no bathrooms and no kitchens with social housing. And we're having a tough time <laughs> because there's no government funding to build deeply subsidized social housing that we need in our community. A lot of people are on welfare here and need subsidy in order to live and the rents are going up. It's a hot real estate market in the downtown east side. This is the most expensive real estate in Canada, maybe in North America, because it's been so devalued by poverty, by us. And we live close to the mountains and close to downtown in this beautiful heritage neighborhood. So investors are buying people's SROs and starting to convert them into higher income housing. I started this project because we need to hang on to the SROs while we're waiting for our social housing to get built. And it's also a frontline way of, if you deal with habitability and you're getting in proactively with tenants, then you're ready to deal with things like evictions and displacement and then overall issues around gentrification. But it's a way to get proactively into spaces and helping tenants stand up to power, basically, in their buildings, which is their landlords and sometimes investor landlords and sometimes landlords. The downtown east side has almost entirely very low-income people on welfare and disability. There's a lot of drug addiction, but people don't define themselves as drug users. They're also, you know, sisters and brothers and volunteers in the community, and some people work part-time jobs. And the single-room occupancy hotels have been around for over 100 years, a lot of them. And there's about 100 SROs with 5,000 rooms in total in the community. And I think those 5,000 tenants or more, because some of them are double occupancy, I think the culture of the downtown east side has been shaped by the SRO life. 
So a single room occupancy room is usually about 10 by 10 or 10 by 12 feet. And you just have your bed and your sink. Some people build shelves and add as much as they can to their room to make it livable. But the bathroom's down the hall and often there's no kitchen. So your life is not self-contained. <laughs> it's not contained. Your life is out on the street. It's in community agencies and grassroots people from the community have fought for a lot of the services here. The main community centre, the Carnegie, there was a seven-year battle to get that community centre. The city councillors at the time, this was about 30 years ago, said, why would we put a community centre on Skid Row? That's like throwing money down a rat hole. But the community fought for it, and they got this beautiful centre that's considered the living room of the downtown east side. We're communal people, and we're renters. And people who live in SROs are also one step away from homelessness. It's the cheapest housing in the city and maybe the region. So it attracts people that are very low income, but there's a long-term stable population of people that have lived here for decades in these hotels. But because people move around, even within the community, from hotel room to hotel room, if something goes wrong or things change or they go away for a little bit, they're used to giving up their room. So when they come back, the landlord can raise the rent when tenants leave. So the rents are slowly creeping up in this neighborhood. And right now, people on welfare in British Columbia have $375 a month. That's the maximum shelter rate that they have to spend on rent. And unfortunately, the hotels are all renting for an average of $485 a month and higher. So a lot of our community has been driven into the black market to pay for rent and food and basic necessities. And the SROs are also starting to get very degraded over time. And the landlords, investors, and slumlords are not putting money into their buildings to keep them fixed up. And there's no senior government money coming to build new housing or provincial or city money to build new housing. So we're kind of in this awful bind. There's been tent cities in our neighborhood. We had a big one at Oppenheimer Park. And there's been a lot of community resistance. The neighborhood just went through a big rezoning period and has been mostly upzoned for condominiums with some token policy protection for some social housing, but it's way under what we really, really need in the community. So it's just not a good situation for people right now in many, many different ways. Tell me about the process of founding and building the collaborative. There's a guy named Richard Marquez, who's a Chicano organizer from San Francisco, who was born in the Mission District, and he is now working in the downtown east side. And for years, he's been telling me that, Wendy, what this community needs is a collaborative. And I didn't even know what that word meant. And I was busy working on helping with the zoning fight, so I kind of ignored it for a while. And then after that storm happened... And we saw that we had no protections for the SROs. I started to investigate what a collaborative is. Did a bit of research in San Francisco online and saw that they've got these projects that are actually, I would think, the basis of the renters movement in San Francisco. They have a collaborative project in every neighborhood of San Francisco. And the city of San Francisco's inspection department is funding them and also the residential tenancy branch of San Francisco. So their renter board is funding them. 
And what they are are proactive outreach programs where community organizers go door to door and help bring tenants together in buildings, building by building, and help improve the habitability and safety. And we do it by doing legal advocacy and community organizing, combining the two together and leadership development. And so those are the early conversations that we were having with Richard and others, like, what is this model? <laughs> and we're starting to put it in place here in the downtown east side, so it's quite exciting. We have one staff person, that's me, and we would like to get more. We're working in six single-room occupancy hotels, four of the worst, and two others. In the last year, we've made some headway, so we've hired lead tenants in each one of those buildings, and we've made some improvements with habitability. We ended up launching the largest case against a landlord in British Columbia history at the West Hotel. 94 tenants are suing the landlord for three months of no elevator service, plus about that long of no hot water, and withdrawing the front desk staff in the middle of the night, leading to a loss of quiet enjoyment in the whole building, culminating in a double homicide in the building, which was horrific, and nothing would have been done if it wasn't for us. It's hard work, but we're making some headway there and headway in our other five buildings. Walk me through the process of organizing a building. The first phase of door knocking and engagement is about trying to find the leaders in the building. And usually you can spot them right away. They're the person that has their door open and they know everything. They know who's coming and going. They know something about the ownership. They know something about the other tenants in the building. They're kind of like wanting to share information, and they have a lot of complaints. So we're looking for those folks, and then we're seeing which one of them wants to get a $200 stipend a month to help door knock through their building once a month. So they check in with their neighbors once a month, and they pull people to a meeting once a month. And we help with all the meeting supports, and we train this person how to do the community organizing in their building, how to do the door knocking. Usually we're looking for people who are like people people, people who like people, and who are actually concerned about their neighbors. And we try to give them as much resources as we can to help them be successful. So that's the first phase. And then the second phase is actually getting all of the tenants to fill out a survey and get them to sign the survey, because in some cases, we can send those surveys right to the landlord, and then the clock starts ticking. We're trying to teach tenants that in order to get something done, you have to prove that you tried to solve the problem. The tenants have to prove that they themselves tried to solve the problem with the landlord. Also, we're trying to teach tenants that it's not about telling stories. It's about showing proof. So get people in a conversation and into some action dealing with some of the problems in the building. And then we end up having to deal with a whole bunch of problems. The landlords always retaliate in some form. They don't like it when tenants take action and start to ask for improvements. So everybody's facing eviction and potential homelessness. So there's lots of strategizing that we have to do around that to prevent that. And then we start trying to get the city inspections department involved. And we start to work on using the provincial residential tenancy branch complaint process. So there's two powerful tools that we can use, although both need improvements to be accessible to tenants, as I'm discovering, and to be useful to tenants. But we're, we're making use of them as best we can. 
So that's kind of our model. And then we get the tenant reps from all the buildings together regularly, twice a month, to work together. And we do a once a month tenant's rights training. And we open that up to all of the tenants in all of the buildings and beyond. And we haven't done this yet, but what we're working towards is getting the tenant reps and the tenants in their buildings working on a campaign, like something that's going to benefit everybody. That's the basic cookie cutter model. And we probably need one community organizer like myself to work on, you know, maybe four buildings max. So we've got a ways to go to build capacity so that we can cover more ground in the community. But I think we're already getting good results in the first six that we're working in. And I think that's going to help us get more resources to continue and do more. And in San Francisco, these habitability campaigns where people are getting into buildings, the organizers and organizing with tenants, building relationships, helping people learn about their rights. It's kind of the meat and potatoes or the fish and rice or whatever your main dish is, kind of like the main dish of the renters movement. There's so much renters organizing going on right now around evictions and rental evictions because of the dot-com companies being in San Francisco. But a lot of organizing is happening in buildings because of the infrastructure that's been built into the community organizing around habitability campaigns, which is really cool. I saw dozens of staff people, dozens of community organizers working on this in San Francisco, which was really neat. So here, there's no funded community organizers in the city of Vancouver doing renters organizing that I know of other than me. We have a similar housing crisis, but we don't have the capacity to deal with it here. So I'm thinking this might be a model and other people should start looking at it too, because there's more than enough work to do here. (laughs) What kinds of strategies do you have for responding when landlords retaliate? So in one of the buildings that I was in, about eight tenants wanted to do some complaints out of the whole building. Everybody else was too petrified. But these eight tenants came forward. And so we tried making complaints. These tenants were quite vulnerable, mental health and addiction issues, most of them. And the person that was the most vulnerable in our group, she was threatened by the manager indirectly, had her life threatened. And when that filtered to the rest of the group, then they all backed off. So a clear message was sent to them that if they're going to pursue this kind of action to get doors fixed, broken windows on the first floor of their SRO fixed, heat and hot water, that they were going to phase retribution, direct retribution. So what did we do? We backed off for a few months, actually, and we wrote a letter to the city of Vancouver and the VPD. The city responded to us and said, You have to deal with our police department. Well, of course, the tenants don't want to deal with the police because if you're seen as a narc in the downtown east side or rat, probably anywhere, never mind our community, that can be dangerous for you too. So we just put it on hold and we left that out there for a while. And eventually we decided to take another stab at it. And the one tenant who wanted to move forward, he again got backlash with intimidation tactics. The police don't take complaints very seriously, even when there's advocates involved. But eventually, we took the complaint forward to the RTB, and we won. We won a huge amount of money for this tenant, $1,600 compensation for no heat and hot water. And we had to prove that the reason why this tenant did not complain to the landlord earlier about the heat and hot water, we had to prove that there was a history of intimidation. And part of that, I forgot, is we met with the owners, and I had somebody take word-for-word notes of the meeting. 
notes, and they were quite open, actually. And we used those notes, and we sent those to the city and the VPD, and we also used them in our evidence package when we went to the residential tenancy branch. And right now, the tenant who won the $1,600, he's gotten retaliation inspections in his room, and they're trying to get him evicted for other things in his room. But I think it's going to backfire because we're documenting everything that's happening, and I think the residential tenancy branch will back us up. At another building that I'm at, eight tenants won compensation for no heat and hot water, and the landlord got himself a high-paid lawyer, and the lawyer's taking the tenants to Supreme Court because he does not want to pay each tenant $450, but the landlord wants to send the tenants a message that it's going to be a hassle if you try to hold me accountable. And the tenants actually absorb a huge amount of risk because if they lose at Supreme Court, they have to pay the court fees, and the court fees are $600 each. So they have to weigh this in their minds. And at first, the tenants are like, this is terrible. Like, I'm not going to pay $600 if I lose. And I said, you know, the chances of you losing is so slim. And I said, if you do lose, I'll give you my word that I'll organize a campaign to get those funds covered. But the chances of the judge actually ordering those court fees are low, too, so not to worry. And that's what landlord backlash looks like. It can be legal. It can be taking tenants to Supreme Court instead of paying the tenants for heat and hot water that they never got. And it can be actually threatening people's lives and everything else. I have another tenant in another building whose room was mysteriously put on fire. And he's our lead tenant. And he's organized on hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of repairs. His landlord tried to evict him six times. So six times he's overturned those evictions, and now the landlord's starting to get penalties from the residential tenancy branch. Tell me more about the skill building and the trainings that you do with tenants. We're trying to teach tenants the four things that they need to prove when they have a problem. The first thing is they have to prove that there was a problem. So I'm trying to teach tenants how to not just tell stories, but to start to collect evidence. I usually joke with them and I say, hey, you guys, 95% evidence, 5% story. (laughs) We usually go through some scenarios about, you know, here's this case that happens. What kind of evidence could prove that the tenant has this problem or that the tenant reached out to the landlord to get help? So the second thing, yeah, we have to prove is that the tenant tried to fix the problem. And the third thing, that the landlord was negligent and didn't try to fix the problem when they knew that there was a problem. And the fourth thing is that the things that you ask for are reasonable. We have a 10-week curriculum around those issues, but we also teach how to door knock in your building, how to facilitate a meeting, how to get along well in groups. So there's a bit of anti-oppression in downtown Eastside Speak that happens at that training. We also have a meeting on taking your landlord to court, another one on how to make a complaint to the City of Vancouver, the Inspections Department. So obviously it will require lots of collective conversations among SRO residents to come to any conclusion about this, but what's your sense of the kinds of things that might be good candidates for community-level campaigns once the collaborative is at that stage? There's so many, it's hard to know where to start. (laughs) I think people need to have a collaborative. They need to have the capacity They need funding so that they can organize their fellow tenants in their building. So I think that's going to be one of the demands is to get more collaboratives going, more community organizers and tenant organizers funded. 
Another is going to be to have the city provide the inspection data really on the spot to tenants when they come to visit them. So the paperwork needs to be accessible and it needs to be on paper and not just on computers like it is here. And in San Francisco, a person's complaint is tracked online. You can easily see at what stage the city's at in terms of monitoring and prosecuting violations. Here we have very, very limited access to that information. There's also bigger policy issues that people might want to work on, like in New York City, for example, all SRO residential hotel dwellers get an automatic hearing if they're being evicted. Here, landlords can just give you an eviction notice and you have a very small window of time to go make an appeal, an application for an appeal. And people have no clue how to go through that process to appeal it. It's really challenging. In New York City, it's automatic. You can't evict somebody unless they have a hearing and a hearing date. So there's some policy changes like that. And I think also tenants are going to want to just lobby to get better housing. Because these SROs, even though they're part of the culture of the community, the communal culture in the community, they have to go. (laughs) They have to get replaced with self-contained apartments that people can afford. So I think that'll be a campaign too. People might also want to join up with other groups in the neighborhood and beyond who are trying to get higher welfare rates. Every year, renters are subject to a 2 to 3% rent increase. If they're long-term tenants, every year the landlord can raise your rent, 2% or whatever it is. It changes every year. They have to give the tenant a certain amount of notice. has to come on the proper form. Like We have to teach tenants about how to slow that down. But tenants might want to have a regular welfare increase every year and actually get caught up to the cost of living. And then just like their landlord to get an opportunity to raise rent 3%, tenants should get a 2 or 3% welfare increase every year too. So we're not quite there yet. You've caught us at early stages. So we're just getting our model sorted out. But that's the goal. The goal is actually that all of the tenant reps or the tenant organizers would create their own council and start doing campaigns. I predict sometime in 2016 or maybe 2017 that we'll start to see our first building turn over to nonprofit management. These landlords can't take the pressure. They're trying to sell. Well, who will buy their building? Will an investor buy their building or will the government buy their building? I have a feeling we might see a success in the next while. We are also organizing a convention We organized a convention last year and the year before for SRO tenants in October. So we're going to do another one this year. We'll be working with Chinese seniors and Chinese youth in the neighborhood to do this convention and try to get residents together to talk about the issues in our community. So that's coming up. That might be where the tenant council gets formed. And the tenant convention will be, there'll be lots of stuff on tenant rights happening at that event. And I think that's the highlight of what's coming up and a lot of hard work. You have been listening to my interview with Wendy Peterson of the Downtown Eastside SRO Collaborative based in Vancouver. To learn more about their work, go to dteschollaborative.org. That's all one word, dteschollaborative.org. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, or to suggest topics for future shows, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show. On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook or Twitter. 
I'm your host, Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, Gender and Sexuality, and Resisting the State, both from Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week.